Good morning. Uh, my name is Mark. This is my wife, Justine. We're going to talk a little bit around small groups this morning. And what we've done, we've just divided it into maybe a third and two thirds. Justine will get us going. We lead a church in Durban North, just across the river at Northlands Primary School, and have done for the last eight years. So it's really good to be in Durban. We're Durbanites now. Very happily so. I'm very happy that Equip is in Durban and not in Marisburg. So uh, good to be with you. Justine, come forward, and she'll kick us off. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for, thank you for coming to this session. So glad it's not empty. <laughs> glad my children are also here. Um, but I thought I'll just kick off by telling you a little bit about my story of how I came to know Jesus and, um, yeah, come, came to church. So I was brought up in a, in a home that my parents were unchurched and ungodly. I didn't know Christ. Um, I had a granny who was um, a strong believer, and so we would go every now and then, like when we were tiny tots, we'd go to Sunday school, and then for Christmas, generally, she would take us while my parents prepared the dinner and whatever. But other than that, I had really little um, knowledge of Christ, and I found myself as a 13-year-old girl in grade nine at a school in Maritzburg, and I was absolutely wild. My parents had got divorced. I was looking for um, a belonging and security in all the wrong places. And the one night we were going out with a group of friends, and um, things didn't turn out as we had expected, and oh, it was a long story, and we ended up in all places spur. And it wasn't where we had anticipated being, but there we were in Spur. And as teenagers, what we did was we ordered water and like two plates of chips, you know. And so we're sitting there with our chips, and there was a group of guys at a few tables away. And this one guy came over, and he introduced himself to me, and he said that he had known my brother. I've got two older brothers. And he said, I've reffed you playing basketball. I used to play basketball. So I said, oh, okay, cool, nice to meet you. And that was that. And anyway, a week later on Wednesday, my landline rang. I'm really dating myself now. And so I picked up the landline, and it was this guy from Spur. And he said, Justine, I hope you don't mind, but I looked up your number in the phone book, dating myself again. <laughs> he said, and, um, and I just wanted to know, would you like to come to youth with us on Friday night? And I was like, thank you so much for the offer, but no, thank you. And I'm um, carried on. And the next week, Wednesday, what happened? My landline rang again. And it was this guy. And he said, don't you want to come to youth? And I said, thank you so much. But I am still very, very busy. Cannot make it. And the week three came, same story. On week four, when that phone rang, I thought to myself, my goodness gracious me, if I don't say yes, this guy's going to phone me for the rest of my life, invite me to youth. So on the fourth week of that invitation, I said, sure, I'm going to come. And I got a, a friend with me. And he gave me an address of a home. And he said, we meet here, and then from there we all go to youth. So I said, okay, cool. And um, I met there with this girl. And I remember sitting in this lounge filled with teenagers. And I was having to, like, keep my mouth from dropping because I looked around at all these teenagers, and they were talking about Jesus. And I was like, how are these kids talking about Jesus? And they're not dorks. They were not weirdos. They were not, like, freaks. They were just normal teenagers like me, and they were talking openly about Jesus. I couldn't believe it. And I, in that house, in that moment, I felt like my heart cracking open. 
And then that night went to youth and there was an altar call and I got saved on that night. And that was the 24th of April, 1998. And from then until now, I know, I know. (laughs) From then until now, I've served Jesus. That's 25 years. But I want to say that it actually started in the home of a stranger. I didn't know the people who owned that home. And I was surrounded by people that I had only met in that that night for the first time. And God came and, and met me in the most real way. And friends, today Mark and I are just going to be sharing a little bit about um, small groups and the power of the home. And I want to encourage you all that so often we think of our corporate times as being the most important and the most impactful. But I want to tell you that we're going to see this morning that Jesus uses the home, that there is so much power to be found in the place called home. So that's a little bit about my story. And this morning, I'm just going to really spend five minutes answering the question, why? Why do we believe in small groups? Why do we do them? And for me, the best picture when I think about small groups is the picture of a heart. I wish I got a little video of this, but we all can imagine a heart beating. The heart is the thing that keeps us alive. It keeps the blood pulsating through us. If you're looking at someone and they are looking back at you, you know very much that their heart right now is beating. It is pumping the blood around the body. And for me, that is what connect groups are like in the church. They are like the heart. Maybe a little bit unseen. Maybe not always front and center like maybe your Sunday sermon or your worship. But it's the, it's the place in the church that keeps the church healthy. It keeps the church alive. It keeps the church connected. It keeps the blood and the life of Christ flowing through the church. These small groups create a few things that I'd like to just say. They create discipleship. I wish that on a Sunday when you crack a great sermon that you would, we could say, oh, had great moments of discipleship. But when we look at the way that Jesus lived, discipleship happened by him saying to his disciples, follow me, look at me, okay, now you have a go, you try it out, and now off you go. That can't happen on a Sunday in church. That has got to happen somewhere else. And I want to suggest that the best place for that to happen is in our homes. The other thing that happens in our homes is that we really get to look after people. In church on Sundays, we can touch people's backs and say, it's great to see you, I hope you're feeling better, I hope you're doing well. But in a small group, you really get to hear the needs of people. You really get to be there. Suddenly someone's got a trauma. Their kid has been in an accident. If you know that, if you're part of a community, you can rush in. You can bring meals. You can send prayers. You can do gifts. You can rush in there because you are in a group. You are connected, and it's an easy place to care. And as leaders, Mark often says, if someone is involved in a connect group, I don't worry about them. He doesn't worry about them because he knows they're in community, they're going to be cared for. Um, another thing that these small groups do is they bring that. They bring community and belonging. So we've, we've been planting a few new connect groups over the last little while. And the one thing that I've heard is someone saying, I'm so glad now when I get to church on Sunday, I'm going to know some people. And that's what happens is that so often we want the belonging to happen in our fellowship time after church, but people gravitate towards people that they know. And so if people can be found and get to know each other in a lounge, they will very most likely feel a sense of belonging in your corporate meetings. 
And another and last thing is that when we have small groups meeting in homes, the chances of people maturing in their faith are great because suddenly they are having to churn over the Word of God. They're having to think of an opinion. They're having to maybe prepare something. And this is where, this is the best place for raising leaders. Again, it would be so easy if we could just hold these lovely conferences and do leadership training and say, all the best, now off you go, go and do it. But to ensure leaders that are lasting, that run the race, that are leading in 25 years' time, I really want to suggest the best place for training is in a connect group where it's safe. Where If you make a mistake, the 12 other people with you, they're happy to encourage you. They're happy to spur you on. Someone is there to say, you did a great job here. What about next time doing something like this? Connect groups is a beautiful place to mature and for us to see leaders come through. If we look at the life of Jesus, he was a super fan of homes. Uh, in, just in the Gospels, we see that there are over 50 accounts of Jesus using the home for ministry. And I just want to go over a few of these. Um, and I'm praying it inspires us to really get homes open in our, in our churches and um, our ministries. But the first thing that we see a lot of is that Jesus healed in homes. Jesus did a lot of healing in homes. In Matthew 8, we see that Peter's mother-in-law is healed of her fever, of her sickness, and that took place in a home. And then it says after that, the whole town gathered around that home, and Jesus continued to heal and set people free. But that, that happened not in the synagogue, but out of his home, out of um, Peter's home. And then in Luke 5, we know that story so well, where um, Jesus is in a home, and he's teaching, and some friends have a friend that is a paralyzed friend who's sick. And what do they do? They climb onto the roof of the home and they open the, the ceiling and they let their friend down and their friend walks out the front door of the home healed. And I really believe that so often we we longing and hoping for healings to happen in our church meetings, but we can see them happen in homes. That's certainly what Jesus did. The other thing that we see Jesus did in homes is Jesus restores. He restores the human heart. In John 11, we have, um, oh, sorry, in Luke 7, um, Jesus went for dinner at Simon uh, the Pharisee's home. And uh, they're sitting there and they're having dinner and the sinful woman walks in and she falls at Jesus' feet. We know the story. And she pours out her perfume and she wipes um, the feet of Jesus with her hair. And Simon is shunning her and saying, this is not acceptable. And Jesus is saying, this is so beautiful. And what is he doing? He's restoring her to a place of dignity. He's giving her a hope and a future. And again, that is the most, the, a home is the most beautiful place for us to restore people, to give them dignity and a hope and something f to look forward to in their future. Another thing Jesus did in the home is Jesus brought comfort to people. In John 11, we see Mary and Martha, they are mourning the loss of their brother Lazarus. And, um, it says that the ladies say to Jesus, if you had come when we called you, our brother would not have died. And it says there that Jesus wept. Jesus showed compassion in the home. And it's a beautiful place. A home is a place that is safe. A home is a place where people disarm themselves. And I want to encourage us that in our homes, we can see people comforted in the most beautiful way. And interesting, the last thing I want to say about homes is that Jesus asked to use people's homes. And I think so often as leaders, I know certainly I feel awkward about saying, would you mind if we 
used your home for something. But we see that Jesus was so bold. He asked to use Peter's, he asked to use people's homes. If you remember the Last Supper, Jesus sent to his disciples, go into the city and um, find some, you know, what does he say here? Um, Jesus tells his disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal, which was to be had and um, before he was crucified. And they asked him where, and he said, just walk into the city and you will find a man with a jar of water. Follow him to his house and ask him, can we use your home for a dinner? That's very bold. And then the most beautiful meal that we all look back on and we remember the last supper takes place in this home. And I want to encourage us all as leaders to be bold and to ask, can we use your home? Because God wants to do miracles in homes. So I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to hand over to Mark in a few seconds. But just to summarize, why do we believe in small groups? We believe in small groups because we see that Jesus placed such huge value on the home that Jesus used the homes and he demonstrated power in the homes. And lastly, we know that scripture, I haven't referred to it but in, or referenced it, sorry, but in Acts 2, when the church is just like multiplying and on fire and it, it's most glorious, we see that it says that they met in the temple courts and they met in each other's homes. And so if for no other reason, but it's what the early church did, we need to be following this example of meeting in homes. It needs to be something that we elevate. It needs to be something that we prioritize. And it needs to be something that we really um, put our attention to. And then the last thing that I want to learn, I just want to um, end off with a fun video, and then Mark will take over. But the other reason why we meet in homes is because life is always better done together. Smarter to travel in groups. just end there, huh? Uh, so Justine's had a look at uh, the why and hopefully we all converted as to this idea of small groups. I think what I would like to do is maybe add a little bit to that. Uh, some of us might have tapped off this idea of small groups because let's be honest, uh, there are some obstacles to meeting in small groups. Uh, some and many people, let's say, they, they more easily come to a Sunday service because I'm going to church. But to get them out of their routine of 
midweek busyness and family and all of these kind of things. There are obstacles. Uh, but I'd like to just work that for a little bit and then also look at some tools that may help us in the way that we run groups because I think a good group, there's nothing like it. Uh, when people connect, when they fit, when they find community, they find God. It's the body of Christ. But there's also the other side of the coin which says if it's not working, it actually propels people the other way. And so we'll have a look at some of those things. Uh, I come from, we come from a church that's been running for 50 years this year. Quite incredible. Ray Oliver led it for nearly half of that time, and now Grant Crawford has been leading for uh, nearly half as well. Uh, Ray used to say this when I was a teenager. I joined the church in 1991. He used to say, what happens if persecution breaks out in the church? And I used to think to myself, well, that's pretty bleak. This is Africa. And, uh, you know, it's not the Middle East. I uh, didn't really know what he was getting on about, but it was quite an interesting question. He said, what will it do to your faith? What will it do to our gatherings? What will it do to the future? And I, I'd never seen persecution really break out until COVID hit. Great question. Uh, I've seen many churches have completely imploded because Sunday meetings closed. But one of the things that... I experienced having led a local church for a number of years now is that we had very strong connect groups and honestly through COVID we didn't skip a beat. Coming through COVID, I'll say this is that we our numbers dropped down. We went from maybe eighty percent of guys in small groups, we were down more at the fifty percent mark. So that's me being honest about that. But going into and through COVID, the fact that there were healthy connect groups or small groups was a huge win for us. And I'd like to say more than your own preference to do with small groups, get back to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say? And look at it as one of the way God protects his people. Uh, You never know what legislation is going to do in your city or in your country. I went down to Cape Town a few months ago and there was a man that had flown in from Dubai. He was an elder in Dubai, a fancy lawyer. Uh, He was trying to find community in Somerset West, and he was jumping around from church to church, and he happens to be a distant cousin of mine. And so the guys with the church leaders said, hey, listen, I'd love this man to join our church. So I said, well, let me go visit them. I went to go visit them and had a cup of tea with them in their, in their fancy home. I think it was on Erinvale Golf Course. And when I got there, it was so interesting for me because I said to him, you know, where have you guys ended up? He said, no, we're very much in a church now. So I said, oh, well, the thing I'm saying is that there's no, there's no formula to actually how you connect people, but it's really important to connect people well. I've been in the church for 33 years now, and that conversation was a really, really important one that just got us going in the church. Uh, I'd like to say this as well. Uh, busyness is not our ultimate enemy. It's never been more convenient, actually, to get into Small groups. What COVID, and I would say this, if you're trying to build the culture of small groups within your church, I would use COVID as the great signpost to show us actually people love community. Don't you remember when we used to congregate on the side of a sidewalk in the shops? We used to break all the rules just so we could see people. Now you're allowed to. When you do your starting points or your new members courses, my suggestions, do them on the nights that you would like people to get into small group. And then set them up. When they're there, if they can come to one event, then you say to them, you know, small groups are so important to us. It's like the other lung of our 
existence. And that's why we do it on a Wednesday night. Because many of our small groups actually happen. We're setting you up. Say to the twinkle in your eye. So many of them end up in small groups. Because you got them out once, they'll do it again. Okay. Number two. People long for connection. I've, I've commented on one, of those, one or two of those things. But Jesus says this, I'm the bread of life. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He's looking at people's longings and acknowledging that. He says you've got longing with inside of you. And actually that connection, that's why we've called ours Connect Group. We realize that people like to connect with each other. But it's also important that people connect with God. And so what does that mean? That means it's times of prayer. It's being devoted to prayer. It's breaking bread together. It's having times of worship. And let me say this about worship. I don't think small group leaders should be worship leaders or else you'll have a very few of them. Or you'll have maybe many leaders but not too many people because it can be horrific in a small group if someone's leading worship and they shouldn't be. Yes? Ever been in a meeting like that? I think you can play a song. You can, if you've got a musician, by all means. But I'm a musician, and very rarely do I pick up my guitar because it's just a little bit more awkward in a small group, particularly if they're new people that are walking in. And I've got huge faith for that. So we might play a song on the TV uh, or or two, have worship moments. That's connecting to God. And then the the third thing that we believe sincerely is that it's important to connect to the Bible. And so it shouldn't just be a social gathering, although those are good. I've noticed that many of our best meetings, and I say best in inverted commas, are those that have got food and they've got no spiritual contact or or, uh, diet. That's not a great long-term goal. Actually, we need to be devoted to the Word. So people long for connection. The third point I want to make (coughs) is that the best leaders are facilitators, not professors. Why say this? And let me explain it for a moment. In 2011, I did a bit of a survey with all of our small group leaders. There were about 150 of them. That was in Maritzburg. And I was interested why many of them were burning out and why they were taking steps back. And I wanted to know what made them tick and come alive. So I asked them a whole bunch of questions. I said, do you love facilitating a group discussion? Do you like facilitating the Holy Spirit? Do you like teaching the Bible? Do you like hosting in a home? Do you uh, love people? Do you, I gave them like 15 different things that do you love leading worship that all the different leaders might do? What are the things that drain you of energy, like heavy pastoral cases, etc., etc.? It was amazing. All the feedback that I got was very disparate. Uh, it was, I, I was quite disappointed, actually. I thought to myself, I wish many more of our leaders loved doing all of these things. It wasn't the case. Uh, many of them were like under 50%. They actually were drained by the people. But there were two things that stood out to me that over it was about 85% of all of our leaders did enjoy. One, they loved hosting. And number two is that they loved people. And I remember taking a step back and thinking to myself, I think we can work with that. Because actually in a home, having that relational warmth, having that love for people, you can't put a value on that. Uh, can you teach them some of the other skills? Yes, you can. But if we're trying to emulate what happens on a Sunday in a small group, we're in trouble. We'll have very few leaders because that's a lot of pressure every week to come up with your sermon in the middle of a working week. And so that's where we change things completely. We said we're actually going to run our groups as sermon-based groups. The aim of your leaders is to facilitate discussion, to ask questions, to uh, elicit response from the people and not preach your sermon. I was in a small group meeting last night, 
and uh, I've planted two groups in the last two weeks. Been fantastic. So I gave the new leader, he's going to take this group. I gave him his crack last night. And you know what he did? I didn't over spec the evening for him. I gave him the questions. I said, facilitate the discussion. And this is what he did. He's, he's a chatty guy. And he likes his own voice. And so for the whole evening, he just he, he gave us all his theories on what he was trying to get across. And he would phrase a question, but it was like a yes or no question uh, or answer. And in the end, it just kept bouncing back to himself. And I thought to myself, I've actually got to spend some time with this guy to teach him how to facilitate a good discussion. Good Small group leaders are fantastic if they say less and the people say more. You say, no, but it's going to be heretical. Sometimes there's heresy and you might need to just straighten it out and say, well, that's an interesting thought. Maybe we should ask the preacher on Sunday. People don't need to be squashed. The fact that they're willing to contribute, that is the win. So the best leaders are facilitators, not professors. I remember one of my elders uh, saying to me, and I thought, this man's crazy. He says, you know what I do? Hey, sometimes I've had a hard day. I said, yeah? He says, no, I, I get into a uh, connect group, and the questions are there because we've, we've given the guys booklets or they're on their phones. He says, sometimes I just chuck it onto the middle coffee table, and I say, hey, Ange, please, you you leading. I said, and does she take the bait? He says, yeah, but it's so easy to facilitate that actually she just reads through the questions and then guys just contribute. You know what the big win of that, I'm not saying everyone should do that, but I'm saying the big win is that Angie's now leading her own small group. So you can think that through for yourself. A fourth uh, learning for us is we've, we've looked at preaching series, and not everyone does this, but we do this. We preach in series. So maybe for six weeks or eight weeks or five weeks, every time we have a new preaching series, you look if there will be an opportunity where we could also launch some new connect groups. And we've found those to be very effective because people, you know, they they burn bright in the beginning and then they dull down. But if you're going to get ready for your new preaching series, the church gets quite excited about that for Sunday, but they could also get excited about it for small groups. And people, they also, they've attended small groups and then they dial out. But you can actually approach them and say, hey, we're starting a new small group. Uh, We're going to do it for six weeks. And not forever. I'm going to do it for six weeks just with our new preaching series. Let's see how it goes. promise you this, uh, over 80% of those that we've started with that ideology, they keep going. Because the people connect well. But the, the nice thing about it is that people don't feel like they're signing up until eternity. And we talk about on-ramps and off-ramps. It's easy to get on and it's easy to get off as well. For the people and for the leaders. It is a bit sad when one or two leaders have come and said, I said to you I'll do it for six weeks. Yeah, that's cool. Out you go. Then we find a new leader. But, but that's okay. At least we got it going. And it just, it's effective uh, that way. Uh, I won't say too much more on that. Uh, the fifth thing I want to say is that the first step for people getting into small groups must be valuable and manageable. If I had to use this example, if, I had to, if you were all parents at the school that I'm the headmaster at, and I'd send out a letter and say, there's an educational weekend uh, into the Midlands. It costs 500 rand, and it's for, you know, four, four, four days. Um, how many of you sign up? That's all I tell you. It's for 500 rand. If I had to say to you, there's a parents' evening on Thursday night from 6 to 7, how many of you sign up? What's the difference? 
well, one, it's quite costly uh, in terms of time and in terms of money, and it's scant of details. The other one, it's manageable, and it's not too costly. And for me, it's like I remember one guy saying, when you're asking visitors and people in a church to take steps into new directions, whether it be volunteering, service, uh, leadership, etc., etc., if you make the step too large, they feel like they're going to rip their pants. They won't take it. But if you make it manageable, okay, I can do it in little increments, they are more likely to do that. And so uh, for me, the first step must be valuable and manageable. So understand that a visitor going to a home for for the first time, uh, leaders need to be there first. It needs to be, uh, someone needs to be prepared and waiting for them and latch onto them like a leader, not let them out of their sight. They can't be sitting in the corner wondering who they're going to talk to or else they're probably not going to come back again. And the same for a leader. If they're going to get leading for the first time, it, to just roll them out and say, give it a go, it's better, and it's maybe my next point, is for them to have had a go at leading within a core, within a team, where it's bouncing it for a little while so they, they know what it's, it's about. Uh, sixth point, I've said set up a leadership core and have a plan. Uh, we've done this. We've done away with the champion leader. So... If this is the leadership core over here, let's say Trevor is the leader, 100%. He's accountable for the group. But this is how we lead. We lead in team. And he facilitates this week. She facilitates next week. I facilitate the week after. And you know what it does to the leaders? It just takes the pressure off of every week. They've got to keep producing the goods. And it gives them opportunity to raise leaders. And you'll be surprised at how many people can actually facilitate a good discussion. Uh, it brings you your next tier of leadership, etc. There was a lady who, um, in fact, uh, I'll stay out of that just for the sake of time. Last thing I want to say is connecting people requires skill. So if you have got a good feel for people, if you've got good EQ, if you are mindful of people that walk into a room and where they're sitting and who they're connecting with, et cetera, et cetera. If that comes naturally to you, you'll understand this. If it doesn't come naturally to you, it's good to get those kind of people into your space. Because I've found, if I had to use the idea of, of Lego blocks or building Lego, uh, connecting those Lego blocks together, some people have got more connectors. They're able to hold lots of people simultaneously. Others have got very small uh, connectors. Uh, how you build the, the building and, and the, the structure, it's quite important and needs time and it needs some, some thought. So put it into uh, real time. This is what I realized is that there, we were getting lots of visitors and we want them to go into small groups and they don't necessarily want to go into small groups. And so how do you get them into small groups? Well, do you just announce it on a Sunday? I've said, no, that's not the best way. You do but you celebrate your new groups, you make it part of your value system, but what we found to be very helpful is the one-on-one invitation. So every week now, and I've, I've only instituted it for the last little while, but it's proved to be very effective. If you want to start small groups and integrate people into your small groups, you've got to have the champion that is thinking about that. So every week on a Tuesday from 9 to 11, I sit down with the champion and we talk about people. And she brings her people and I bring my people and we talk about where are they connected. We talk about how are the small groups going and where can we put them in. And the result of that is actually phenomenal because suddenly leaders emerge. Why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? And some phone calls can be made. Hey, I'm going to come and help you. Why don't we do it? 
Last Tuesday, I started a group with a bunch of new people that haven't been involved. They've been coming on Sundays for a long time, but now they're venturing out. And geez, you can celebrate the win. Last Thursday, I started it with a bunch of parents with small kids, lots of them. And hey, I was, after 20 years of ministry, I must admit, I, I thought I was a genius with the message I sent to the one lady. I said, tell you what we're going to do just for these six weeks. We're going to alternate parents if you don't have a babysitter. That was a good thought because immediately we got everyone into the room and they bought into the group. And this week we saw the alternating spouse come and we're just doing it for six weeks and it will settle and we'll find a way as to what we're going to do with the kids and then keep to time. I'm going to stop it there for the sake of time. I hope there's some helpful thoughts there. There's much we could say about small groups, but I believe in this implicitly. Uh, I actually put up, when I knew I was talking about this, I put up a, a post on my Instagram profile with this new group we planted last week, and I said this, I've been attending small group since I was born in 1979. My parents were, were subscribers to small group, and they took us, all five kids, along with them. They never let anything stand in their way. They never let kids uh, dictate to the life of God. And so if you, if you prod and poke me, it comes out, I believe in this. Uh, I never understood it fully until my teenage years when I was given the, the reins of leading a small group. And I remember my first small group, all the people arrived and I ran out and I, I nearly got sick. I was so overwhelmed. I was about 13 years old. But from then until now, I've never, I've never not led a small group. We love it. We've seen the life of God. We've, it's God's way. It's God's plan. And so I trust that that uh, blesses you. We're going to end with uh, this video just to have a look at it, And then we can ask any questions if we need to. We lived on a small holding in the Transvaal. We were raised in a, a loving Anglican home. We went to Catholic convents. The best nursery school in the area was a Jewish nursery school. So of course we'd come home saying, oh, mommy, sister Philomena gave us a holy card. And my younger sister would come home saying, mom, rabbi was at school and we made hassan tassan today. And then because of our distance in the, on the small holding, we went to a Methodist church. We always went to church. My name is Wendy Slater. My journey was really a solo one. I suffered from the most dreadful, debilitating anxiety and depression. And my sisters said to me that it wasn't my lifestyle that was causing the depression. They felt that it was my isolation. You know, having gone from being a career woman to being a housewife, not having children of my own, become more and more reclusive and isolated. And they said I needed to be with people. And Monique said, you have to get yourself to a connect group fast. I picked up the phone, I messaged Justine from my dark room with curtains drawn at midday. It just so happened that that Thursday evening they were having a connect. So I put on my best brave face and a fake smile and off I went. It's actually from a connect group that I joined One Life Church. And that for me was the first time I'd ever encountered God. I knew God. And I thought I had a relationship with God because I read my Bible and I did all the things that you were meant to. And what was miraculous for me was that I hadn't encountered God in a church. I'd actually encountered Him in a home of strangers who were to become some of my best and closest friends. The more I was going to Connect Group, the more I was offering to assist in ways that I could. I wanted to share it with someone that was close to me. Peter, my husband, he believed, it's not that he wasn't a Christian, but he did have questions. Through 
actually living my faith. But just things started shifting. And Peter is more committed in his, in his Christianity and his walk in faith now than ever before. When you are grappling with really, really big questions in life, those questions can only be answered by people that are further along their walk, by friends in the community, in church. And I think that, for me, is what the church is. It's community. It's not a building. You can't live Christianity in isolation. It is best lived in community. That's, that's Wendy. Um, are there any questions just before? We've got about eight minutes. Yes. Do you want to use this? Can I just put this on quickly? I'm, in, I'm from Freedom Gate down um, south coast. Um, and I just felt that with small groups, we often have people that fall out of church. And with a small group, you can actually follow up. You're more conscious of them falling out. And you can follow them up and find out what their problem is or counsel them, which you can't do in church because if they just are remote, they're just another number that disappears. I think it's a I think it's a very good comment. I, I don't even need to add to that. I will say this: we actually had a prayer meeting the other night where we, for whatever reason, we decided to mobilise the church through small groups, and it was overwhelming how many people came to the prayer meeting. And I, I actually went back and thought to myself, this is the power of small groups. Um, if you've got people in them and you've got leaders on board, you can actually mobilise your church. the 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 heart of your church is strong. So yeah. Any other questions? Uh, you mentioned something about you guys, your champions spend like uh, 9 to 11 or whatever trying to just admin the side of actually trying to get people slotted in or visitors or something. Can you just explain exactly how you manage a visit on Sunday and how do you manage that to make sure people don't fall through the cracks? So I, th I will say this is that there's no perfect science to people uh, as long as there's people. But uh, what we do do, we've got a visitors team on a Sunday that it's not go to the visitors lounge. It's actually a visitors team that's at the front gate that is trying to establish who the visitors are and then trying to get their details in very subtle ways and, and skillful ways. So it's not saying, can I have your phone number and can I get hold of you? But it, sometimes, like, I know um, he, he or she knows Trevor and it's sending a message, uh, would you have their details? Or there's a person in the red shirt sitting in the back row could... Uh, Justine, you be in touch with him after the service, and then we give uh, coffees and we try and lavish them. Some of them slip through the cracks, and that's all right. But most people, when you when you uh, take that step, uh, they really appreciate it. Uh, from there, if we've got their details, we make contact with them on a Monday and a Tuesday, and it's either messaging or it's phoning, and then it's inviting them to our new members class but it's also when i say class it's a we call it starting point and really our starting point is not trying to go through all the theological foundations of the church it's trying to connect and we have it around dinner we have it in multiple homes if there's too many of them and we cover who we are as a church but we look at these two things can guys get involved in the church and can they get into connect groups those two things we've distilled it down to when those things are working well it, it, people integrate well and once that happens uh and we start to go on the journey and get to the, know them. We know who's in our small groups and who isn't because we regularly update them maybe every three or six months. And uh, if they're guys that have started coming into the church and are regular two, three, 
times, maybe four times, those guys are on the list of the people that we dis- discussed on a Tuesday morning between 9 and 11. Who would they fit with? Wh- what's their profile? Are they young? Are they old? Would they be best in that connect group or that? And then who... So I'm meeting with the champion, and we decide who's going to phone them and who's going to get... How are we going to get them in? What's the best way? Because it needs skill to connect people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Brilliant. Nice. Any other questions? So just one other thing. When we come back the next week to the 9 to 11 meeting, we're also feeding back on the work that's been done and do we still need to carry it on, etc. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that you led a group for the first time at 13. Uh, I wanted to ask, what is the best piece of advice for a young potential leader like to lead a small group? Mm. So yeah, that guy who let me lead was probably crazy <laughs> back then. But I remember so clearly how he got me to lead. Uh, he is Guy Feltman. He used to lead the Belito Church, and I, I actually have connected really well with him recently. But this is what he did. Every Friday, I would come back from sport. I'd go straight to his house. I'd shower there, and he would, for half an hour, he'd just go through what his thought was around the meeting and how to facilitate the discussion, and he'd give me one scripture to read and three questions to discuss on a little piece of exam pa- paper. And he set me up. He's, he was teaching me, even from then, rather discuss than teach. And uh, yeah, that, that would be, I think young people can facilitate discussions. Um, and then just, it's training them when the big question comes and you don't know what to do then because that's a crisis and where to run to get the knowledge. Uh, but I think don't sidestep character with young people. Call them to account. Give, throw a high bar up, but believe in young people. And that, that's one thing. I, I was... Uh, I often say this, but my worst year of life, my most rebellious year of life was when I was 12. I was a bad own, just in every way. And it was because I fell between the, the old Sunday school model and like youth. I just wasn't old enough yet. And Guy actually said to me, come to youth, come into my small group, and started believing in me. And he got me on the track of leadership within six months. And from then till now, the rest is history. So I, r- I really believe in young people. Give them, a, give them a go, man. Yeah. Any other questions? Maybe two or three more. Yes. The lolly. Um, so I just want to um, add on to what you've just said. A very good friend of mine um, taught me that when, um, because my husband and I are leading kidsmen at our church now, she said there is no junior Holy Spirit. So our kids have have the ability to have the same relationship with Jesus, for instance, as I have. Very good. Oh. Very good. Nothing to add. Model answer right there. Okay, <laughs> one more question. Yes. Can I pass it back? Hi, all. Uh, my name is Emmanuel. I'm leading a church in Chesterville, uh, Ambassadors of Christ Ministry. The only challenge we face currently is that when you appoint somebody to be a leader, depending on the worship, depending on uh, small groups, they tend to be uh, above, you know, out of control. So how do you manage that? Because before you, uh, you like, promote them, they, they behave but it's the moment you give them a, a chance just to facilitate or whatever, then they tend to 
just exactly so how 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 can we work how can i manage that because yeah. i don't know whether you give them a chance prematurely mm. or because i believe that we everyone deserves a chance yeah but the problem starts when the moment you give them a chance then they start to act like they are bigger than anyone else they don't want to be advised they just want to do their own things yeah. thanks it's a good question that and i think one of the things that uh leaders do need to discern is if you're going to put people into another leader's care, it's like as an under-shepherd, um, you, you want to know that there is character there and that there's teachability and servant-heartedness, etc. So you want to be looking for that. If you're taking someone from zero to a hundred, it's risky. Because you're taking them from being part of a group and now suddenly they're leading. And then the cracks start to appear and then it's too late. But I think when, you've, when you're doing group leadership and you you, you're learning, you're seeing potential, you're seeing the gold among the dirt, and you're beginning to work with that. That's how Jesus did it with his disciples. He, he, he didn't just throw them out and say, off you go. Um, he did it, then he took them alongside, and he did it with them, and then he said, you go and do it, but bring a report back to me, and then he said, ultimately, okay, off you go. So there's a process to that. Um, I think that what you're describing is someone that's got a worldly mindset toward leadership. You don't want to be releasing those guys to lead God's people. Uh, you've got to actually... Get, you've got to teach what does kingdom and godly leadership look like with those kind of people and with your leaders and reinforce it all the time. What is leadership? It's servant-heartedness. It's laying down your life. It's, it's all the, and if that's not apparent, that's very concerning, yeah. So I, think, I mean, it, there's a lot more that could be said, but I just think for all of us here, it's risking wonderfully believing like God be- believed in you, but it's also not taking shortcuts when it comes to character and those things that ultimately they damage God's people. Okay. Wonderful. It's been a good session with you guys. Oxygen is out of this place. You want lunch. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. <laughs>